Well, this past week, John and I learned something new about the church calendar, and we're grateful for it. Um, We were told by some of you that October is Pastor Appreciation Month. (laughs) And I'm not aware that that's been a long time part of the church calendar, but apparently it's part of it now. And and, uh, some of the ladies from our congregation, some of you gathered together and wrote notes of encouragement and thanks to us and, and uh, included a gift card to each of us as, as uh, a thanks and encouragement to us. And we're, I speak on behalf of John, too, to say we're really grateful for that. Thank you. We really do appreciate it. And uh, uh, we appreciate you. We ought to have Congregation Appreciation Month, too, because believe me, there are good reasons for that. There are many congregations in which there are a few reasons for appreciation. Um, but in this one, there are many, and so we're glad for you too. So thank you and blessings to you. This morning, we're going to start into the book of Esther. And so you can see on page six of your bulletin, there's a little section of the, the first chapter of this book. And I, I realized that in 2003, just as this church was beginning here in this theater, Rich Lambert preached through the book of Esther in some detail. And some of you old-timers will remember that, I imagine. It it was 13 years ago, but I expect some of you will remember that. Uh, So my apologies for the repetition. But if your memory of sermons is that good, then um, I'm a little concerned for you, and maybe for me too. My intention for us in in our sermons here at New St. Peter's is that we, together as a church family, be exposed to the gospel through each type of scripture that the Bible provides for us, through the, the letters in the New Testament and the gospel accounts in the New Testament, through the prophets of both old and new. We, we worked our way through Revelation uh, a year ago. Uh, and also through the, the poets of the Old Testament and the history, most of which is in the Old Testament. And uh, So we need to see these things because God's hands are busy at work accomplishing his redemption for his people through all the ages of history. And if we're to grow deep in faith, then we must see his fingerprints in that history. Esther provides some of that for us. Esther is at the very tail end of Old Testament history along with Nehemiah, the very end of the Old Testament. And it's a fascinating history that it gives to us. God's name actually does not even show up in the book of Esther. Maybe you already know that. There's no direct and obvious evidence of the presence of God in this book. It's unique in the entire Bible in that way. But the fingerprints of his providence are everywhere here. So join me as we read, beginning in verse 1. I'll read. In the days of Ahasuerus or Xerxes, he's otherwise known as, the king who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, 
and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the, king, the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that uh, you would be at work in us again this morning as you've gathered us here together as your church, as your people, your sons and daughters. Grant to us your spirit, Lord. We know that you don't call your people together in vain But you call us together to gather to worship so that we might be fed in our souls by your spirit as you work your good news deeper into us. We pray you would do that this morning for us. Otherwise, we would simply be blind and unaware, uh, uh, completely oblivious to the great things that you're accomplishing. Would you accomplish those things in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Our hope in the gospel, you surely know this at this point, after being here at New St. Peter's, if you've been with us for some time, 13 years certainly, those of you who were here in 2003, our hope of the gospel is based on God's promise. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to an old man named Abram, and it's a promise that has lasted ever since. It's a promise upon which the entire civilization of the world is founded. And it's a promise that says this, I will make of you a great nation so that you will be a blessing and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That's the promise. That's the the promise upon which the hope of the gospel is founded. In other words, God's promise, recognizing the broken nature of the world, the pain, the death, the destruction, the deception that so filters through all of our world and penetrates to the depths of who we are, despite all of those things, recognizing those things, God's promise is to heal the world through Abraham. That's what we hope for. And if we don't hope in that, then there's no hope. God, ages before even Abraham, had established the grounds on which to make this promise. You may perhaps know this as well. In Genesis chapter 3, God himself said directly to Satan, the enemy, the deceiver, making not a promise but rather a proclamation. He said, the offspring of the woman will strike your head even as you may strike her his heel. In other words... God declared to Satan that the woman's family, Eve, her family, will crush you through the one who is to come. 
even though you will try repeatedly and even succeed to strike his heel, in other words, to take blows against him, trying to destroy him before he destroys you. Esther is about that promise. And more importantly, it's preservation. That's what the book of Esther is all about. This promise without which there's simply no hope in the world, regardless of of what nation is powerful or even what political party leads it. We get lost so often, all of us do. I'm, I'm with you. We all get lost in the the clutter of our lives, so many good things that we're about and concerned about, striving to build careers and families and homes, fretting over homework and friends and growing up, debating policies and people and truth, all those things that we're engaged in so often, they're good things, they're important things, but we get lost in the clutter of those things and too easily Christians lose sight of the fact that in his providence, God is faithful to his promise to heal his people. What is providence, after all? You you maybe know that word. It's a, a good theological word. In the Presbyterian church, it's a word that we really like. And we like to, to think about providence. We probably don't talk about it often enough. What is providence? Well, our confessional standards give us a great answer for it. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his people and all their actions. After all, we know from the Apostle Paul that those who love God and uh, for those who love God, all things work together for their good. For those who are called according to his purpose, and his purpose in providence is to redeem his people. And this he does in unlikely places. And he does it with the help of unsuspecting people. And he even does it through the course of unseemly events. All of which the writer of the book of Esther wants for us to see. Esther, of all stories, of all stories in the Bible, Esther surely shows us some of those unlikely places. Esther begins by by putting us in a place in the days of King Ahasuerus. I'm not even sure how to pronounce that. His other name is Xerxes, and that's much easier to say. Ahasuerus, I guess, is his Persian name. Xerxes is his Greek name, and he's better known by that in the annals of history. Xerxes, the king who reigned from India to Ethiopia, sitting on his royal throne in Susa. So this writer, who we don't know anything about, in fact, we don't even know their identity, This writer, who evidently was a Jew, who evidently lived as an exile, probably in Susa. Some suggest it might have even been Mordecai who wrote this. We don't know who wrote it. But this writer immediately places us right smack into the middle of the empire of the Persians in a citadel, a city called Susa. Now we know that this ancient city existed Uh, was situated in the place that we would call modern-day Iran, or maybe you call it Iran, depending on whether you're from Texas or not. In modern-day Iran, this is where this unlikely city is, and in this unlikely place, a very famous drama unfolds in order to preserve God's promise. A little bit of history to go along with this. So just to kind of, kind of recap some of the Old Testament picture. A thousand years before Jesus was born, 
a thousand years before the birth of Christ, do you know who the prominent king of Israel was? David was the, that prominent king. King David reigned over the nation of Israel, which was an important nation at the time, but it wasn't the biggest and most powerful at the time, but it was an influential nation at the time. King David was the king, a man after God's own heart. After him, of course, came his son Solomon, the wisest man in the world, who, like David, would reign for 40 years over Israel. And in the year 930 B.C., after Solomon's death, the nation of Israel was split in two over divided factions, literally split into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And for 200 years, that northern kingdom, which was called Israel at the time, endured, led by exclusively unfaithful kings. Every single one of the kings who led that northern kingdom rejected God, turned his back on God, and followed after pagan gods. And then, after 200 years of God's patience with them, Assyria came, conquered them, took them over, and took them away. The southern kingdom, which was called Judah at the time, endured another hundred years, another century, through somewhat inconsistent king leadership. Some of their kings were faithful to God, others were not. And after another century, Judah was taken over by the Babylonians and taken away. And just as the prophet Moses had warned the people hundreds of years before, if you reject the Lord your God, he will drive you off to a nation unknown to you or your fathers. And that's exactly what happened. The people of Israel went into exile, as, as we say, into another land. But that exile would not last forever. Jeremiah had already informed them of the word of God, saying, The days are coming when I will bring my people, Israel and Judah, back from their captivity and restore them to the land I gave their father, forefathers to possess. And in order to accomplish that, God raised up a man named Cyrus, king of Persia, who became one of the most powerful and influential kings in the ancient world and reigned over a large area of land in the Middle East. Isaiah had even pronounced Cyrus's coming before he came. And in the year 539 B.C., so this is history class, you kids, write down your stuff so you can report to your teachers tomorrow. 539 B.C., Cyrus conquered Babylon by night and he liberated its captives by day. He set out a, de a decree granting freedom and even resources to rebuild for the Jews. He sent them back. He said, you're free now to go back to your homelands, because after all, your homelands reside within the bounds of my kingdom. You now can go back to your homelands, and you can even rebuild the cities where you once lived, Jerusalem and others. The book of Ezra tells us about that. And while many Jews were returning to their unlikely little plot of dust on the eastern edge of Medi the Mediterranean Sea, big things were happening in the rest of the world. Big important things. So in the Far East at this time, there was a philosopher named Confucius who was trying to figure out the meaning of life, and he became rather famous. In the Near East, Persia itself continued for decades from this time to build power and influence in the region with their sights set on expansion to the West, because in the West was Greece. 
one of the most influential countries and cultures in the history of the world, formulating the beginnings of what we would call democracy, even now, and developing and and pressing forward philosophy and theater and mathematics and even the Olympic Games. The the Greeks were, were about important business at this time of history. Big, important things. All the newspaper headlines of the ancient world were about all these big, important things. And all the while, God was at work. God was at work restoring his people to their homeland in a nowhere place. While some of them providentially remained behind in an unlikely place because that ancient serpent called the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, saw a chance to destroy the promise. If he could just kill off this little people, the Jews, if he could just eliminate them from the cultures of the world altogether, the world would never even notice and the world would not have noticed and the woman's offspring would never come to be. That's the providential circumstance that's unfolding in this unlikely place of Susa. Because the powers of this world, even today, pay attention to the important places. The the powers of the world pay attention to the big cities with big money. And they pay attention to the big celebrities with big names. But God is at work in the unlikely places. God's at work in the little churches. God's at work in ordinary families. God's at work in the mundane jobs that you do every day, every week, every month of your life as your life rolls on. God's at work in the awkward conversations that you have. And God is at work in every intricate part of your life, as unlikely as it may seem, because in his providence, he is always and forever preserving his promise to heal his people. All that history brings us up to about 480 B.C. now. And at this point, the grandson of Cyrus whose name we know as Xerxes, is now the the new young king of Persia. And we find him here in this passage calling for banquets. He's got something to celebrate. Banquets that will providentially tip the dominoes to preserve the promise of God. And he does it with the help of unsuspecting people. There are five characters, primary characters here really to to pay attention to in the book of Esther. So briefly, to, to kind of summarize them, and their, their unsuspecting providential nature in the role of this story. Xerxes himself is the young king, and, and what a banquet he throws here. Isn't it amazing, the banquet that he throws here? In his third year, he throws this feast for all the officials and servants of his kingdom, but not only them, the army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were all before him. Hundreds, probably thousands of important Men, even the armies of his lands, are there before him for a party that lasts 180 days. Now, they got drunk at the party. If the party lasts for six months, people get drunk. And that's what happened here in this ancient world. I mean, granted, all that he's providing for them, this lavish feasting as he's showing them his rich and royal greatness... He's showing them his golden furniture and bountiful wine with no holds barred drinking. I I think that when it says 
that there is no compulsion, it doesn't mean you don't have to drink. It means you don't have to stop drinking. Drink all that you want. This is a a lavish party. And there's a reason for this, because this young king has ambitions. And if not for the drunken ambitions of this young king, a young queen would not have struck a blow for women's liberation. Right? So Vashti is the young queen, and and here she is in verse 9 giving a feast for the, the women at the same time. And on the last day of the party, the king sends his servants off to retrieve the queen and command her to come with her crown on to show her off to a thousand drunken men. And go figure, she refused. Now, ladies, I know you understand why she refused, but men, listen, she refused. Because if you ever call a woman to stand before a thousand drunken men so they can Google over her lovely figure, she ain't coming. And Vashti refused this proud woman. And if not for her pride, a young Jewish girl would not have ascended to power. Esther, of course, is the namesake of the book. Hadassah is her Persian name that we're given there. And she is an orphaned Jewish girl. We don't meet her here in this passage until chapter 2. But you know of her. She was an orphaned Jewish girl raised by her older cousin, whose name was Mordecai. And what we're told about Esther, other than that she was orphaned and she was Jewish and she's raised by her cousin, the detail we're given is this. She had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Now, Esther, this book is is bizarre and strange, isn't it? The things that it emphasizes for us. Because if not for her looks, she would never have risen to a position of power. Mordecai, her her cousin who raised her, has a Persian name, Marduk, Mordecai, but he was a Jew, we are told, and we're told in the second chapter where we meet him that he is a son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now, that, that proves his Jewishness because he actually is descended from the very family of King Saul himself. This is where Mordecai's heritage came from. King Saul, an interesting detail here, had defeated a people called the Amalekites, but he had spared their king Agag, whom God judged Saul for because he wasn't supposed to spare this king. Haman, the villain, is an Agagite, a descendant of this king. Now, Mordecai also, we're told, sat in the king's gate. That simply means that he was engaged in the civic activities of the day and if not for Mordecai's civic engagement he would not have learned of a plot against the king's life and therefore gained favor and grounds for opposing the villain Haman whom we're told in the next chapter was an Agagite a descendant of the Amalekites and in Exodus chapter 17 I know all these pieces you've got to fit together in Exodus chapter 17 we learn that the very first people who attack and try to destroy the Israelites as they have wandered out of Egypt are the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the first ones who sought to destroy them. And that's where we read of the story, the famous story of Moses holding up his arms on a hilltop above the battle as Joshua and the Israelites defend themselves against the Amalekites. And as long as Moses' hands are up, 
The Israelites are winning. When he gets tired and drops his hands, they start to lose. And so helpers come and hold his arms up. And finally, the Israelites defeat the Amalekites. And we're told there that the warning is the Lord will now, because of this, forever be at war with the Amalekites for generations to come. And now, a thousand years later, the Amalekites come again in the form of Haman to try to destroy the Jews from the face of the earth. Look, the the pieces of the puzzle of providence string back through the most unsuspecting people. We all have these kind of stories, if you think about it, if you look back on your own life. I mean, I would tell you that the reason why I am the pastor of this church and married to that woman and father to these teenagers is because one of my high school basketball teammates insisted on going to the United States Military Academy at West Point. That's why I'm here. In 1987, I was narrowing my college choices down to two. It was between Texas A&M, sorry you Longhorns, or Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. They both had good engineering programs, and so I was interested in both, and I wanted to visit both. I went down to visit Texas A&M, and I stayed with my friend, John Isaacson, who the year before had graduated from my high school, having been deferred for a year to West Point. He really wanted to go to West Point. But now he had a year in which he had to gain some college credits. He went to Texas A&M, but he did not want to be there. He was the only person I knew at Texas A&M, and so I went down one weekend to visit my friend John and stayed with him at his apartment, and it was a terrible visit. My host didn't want to be there, and he lived in an apartment off campus with two guys he did not know and did not care about, and they were drunken idiots all weekend long, and all that ever happened over the weekend was I got a tour of the campus and had to stay in an apartment with some drunken idiots. I didn't want to go there. And so I went to Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. At Vanderbilt, a friend of mine, in the first week of my school year there, my freshman year, a friend of mine invited me to a movie night with some friends of his. He was a sophomore and knew some upperclassmen and some other students there. And I went to this movie with a crowd of folks. And we arrived at the theater a little bit too late for us all to sit together. So we had to split up. And I ended up sitting next to her. I didn't know her until that evening, but I met her there, and I thought, well, this is a cute young woman that I could enjoy getting to know. I was slow in doing it, but eventually I did get around to marrying this young woman. But also there, a week later, after meeting her, I was with some dorm mates at a hamburger joint across the street from campus. And as we were leaving, a guy I didn't know came and grabbed one of my dorm mates and said, Hey, Jack, come on over here. I told you about this gathering of guys. They're Christians, and and we're going to sit together and and study the Bible together. I want to get you guys together. And Jack grabbed me and said, Colin, I think you'd be interested in this. And I went and sat with these guys, and they became what, what we called our core group of guys. For all four years of college, we met together weekly to pray together, to encourage each other, to read Scripture together. They became my best friends and remain so today. And through these guys, most of whom had grown up in Presbyterian churches, when RUF came to campus, they grabbed me and took me there because I knew nothing about it. Through that, I ended up going to seminary. And not only that, through that, I met a young guy named Keith Benedict, who almost 20 years later would be a ruling elder in this church. 
And because of Keith and Rich Lambert, who was here, I ended up coming here in 2007. And here I am today. Husband to her, father to them, pastor to you, all because my high school basketball teammate wanted to go to West Point. Now, you guys have those same kind of stories, I know. You can easily look back and weave the parts of the tapestry together. And here's the lesson for us. Christians get distressed about knowing the will of God for their lives, don't we? I know you do. Sometimes you get distressed about it. You, you think, how am I to know God's will for the future? I don't want to make any mistakes. I do want to choose what God wants me to choose, and yet I can't see the future. This little book has an answer for you, and it's a simple one. Do what's before you with faith and wisdom as God allows it. And even when you make a mistake, and the book of Esther is full of people's mistakes, when you make a mistake, God is still at work in providence to do as He wills day by day in the unlikely places and through unsuspecting people, but even through unseemly events. Okay, so, so Cyrus's decree, go back with me in history a little bit. Cyrus, King Cyrus, issued that decree to release the people back to their places. And Isaiah the prophet had already spoken of him in almost a fond kind of manner. God had called Cyrus his shepherd. He had said of him, he is my shepherd and I will accomplish all that I decree through King Cyrus. Now, Cyrus did what he did, unbeknownst to him of God's decree, He made his own decree, and he did so not out of the goodness of his heart. He did it in order to establish control over parts of his kingdom. He had to send people back out across his kingdom so that he could maintain control with goodwill to them and be a powerful king. His intentions were scheming and controlling, but his intentions also were providential because he released the Jews to their homeland. Now, another event is Ahasuerus, Xerxes' banquets that we read about here in this chapter. Why did he call for these lavish banquets? It's, it's absurd. I mean, it is frat party times infinity. It's, it's ridiculous, this party that he puts on. Why did he do it? He did it because he was planning to accomplish what his father had failed to accomplish. He wanted to conquer Greece. He was after Greece, and what he had to do as a young king was gather together and rally his troops, so to speak, gather his armies and his powerful people together and show them a good time for six months. And after that, I mean, who's not going to do what the king wants to do, right? He's manipulating and controlling things for his own ends. And between chapters 1 and 2 of Esther... We have the the year 480 B.C. about, and the Persian army swarms down to Greece to the Battle of Thermopylae. It's a famous battle in history in which a, a, a small number of Greeks defended a mountain pass against the swarming hordes of the Persians. Eventually, um, Xerxes' armies failed to conquer Greece, uh, but, but his intentions were political and they were ambitious but they were providential because his overly ambitious efforts here provided a temptation to the queen to rebel, didn't it? 
And Vashti's refusal then is, is such an event. It's, it's in a sense kind of unseemly, although it's respectable, I guess. I can't imagine, of course, why she would refuse to come and pose for these thousand drunken men, but she did, right? She was a proud woman, a brave woman, no doubt. Probably a resentful woman, too. And yet her actions were providential because it caused her to vacate her place of power. And because of that, the so-called wise men of King Xerxes' palace would suggest a decree. I didn't read it. It's the second part of chapter 1 here. But the king became enraged at Vashti's actions, didn't he? He was, he was furious with her and he, he just had to do something about it. So he consults with his wise men. And in the verses that follow, the, the ones on your page there, we read about his wise men's suggested decree. This is what they said. Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the people. For her behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they'll say, Queen Vashti did not come when called. So let it be decreed that all women must honor their husbands, and every man is the master of his home. And that decree was delivered to all the provinces from India to Ethiopia. That took a lot of effort in that day. They didn't have text messaging. It was so important to them to deliver that decree that they went from India to Ethiopia, and the intention was arrogant. The intention was controlling. The intention of it was disrespectful to women. But it was also providential. Because the strength of women so disregarded would become the weak link, so to speak, that God would use to preserve his promise in the work of Esther. The absence of God from this book is is one of the fascinating characteristics of it. And it's a bizarre sort of, of... of picture, God just doesn't even show up literally in the book. There's no mention of his name. There's no word from heaven. There's no miraculous deed that happens. Just ordinary events, even unseemly ones, through which God providentially preserves his promise. After all, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Proverbs 16. And that trouble in Esther comes through a theme that shows up again and again. And I conclude with this. The theme of the reversal of fortune. Xerxes, the great king, was reigning proudly over his banquets until his drunken command and a proud queen turned his party upside down. Queen Vashti was a lovely monarch to behold until the king's anger set her aside forever. Esther herself was a peasant orphan girl until her beauty swept her into power that would change the course of the world. Haman himself was a favored ruler in a powerful country until his murderous ways come back on his own head eventually, as we'll read. And the Jews, of course, the Jews were a soon-to-be-exterminated people until God's covenant promise takes hold and saves them. And all of those simply to anticipate the Son of God Himself, crowned with power and glory until 
He took upon his shoulders a wooden cross and death upon his head so that you and I, weighed down with the guilt of sin until the righteousness of Christ is placed with grace upon our shoulders. Esther is a strange story. It's, it's a weird one. It's, it's a very odd little bit of history that's thrown in towards the end of the Old Testament. And it's one that challenges us because providence is a strange gospel truth. But that's why we have Esther. Because you can only see providence with hindsight. But when you do, you can believe it in foresight. Believe it because God is at work. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, we pray that as we gather as a family here at your communion table to which you call us, that you would increase our faith to believe you, and cause our hearts to marvel at your grace before us in Jesus, and cause us, Lord, to glorify your name, because you have preserved your promise through all ages. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.